0: Amen. Well, if you would uh, open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, our text for this evening is verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And even as you're turning there, I'm going to encourage you to to leave your Bibles in your laps uh, because what we have before us. Uh, is a difficult text. We even said that in passing last week, that we would be handling a, a real difficult text this evening. And, and the difficulties come, particularly in verses 3 and 7. Uh, again, I have many commentaries in uh, in my office. The whole wall behind my desk is is full of commentaries, and I have spent hours upon hours thinking of the and reading of the words that the commentators have write, specifically in regards of verse 3 and verse 7. Who is this man of lawlessness? Who is the one that's holding back this man of lawlessness? And much ink uh, has been spilt writing about those things. But we can't let these hard questions cause us to avoid what the Lord might have for us to hear this not. Yes, this passage has challenges. Yes, even as Pastor Don and I were talking, I've spoken of how my time in in my study of this text for the past couple of weeks has kind of changed some of my eschatology, if you will. And and yet, at the same time, I think that our God has something very important to tell us. And, And one commentator preacher, I think, does a really good job helping us to not get lost in the forest due to the trees by pointing out for us five anchor points that exist within this text. And so before we even read it, if you want to note these down or even underline them in your own copy of God's Word, I want to show you what these five anchors are. The, the first anchor there is in verse 2. That we not be quickly shaken In mind. The Apostle Paul writes very pastorally to the Thessalonian believers, and he does not want them to have a spirit of fear. He does not want them to be alarmed. He does not want them to be shaken. And so that's the first anchor. The the second anchor there is in verse 3 that Paul very pastorally does not want the Thessalonian believers to be deceived. So he doesn't want them to be shaken. And he doesn't want them to be deceived. He is very concerned about these people being led astray. And then in verse 5, he gives us that third anchor. He tells us we are not to be shaken, we're not to be deceived, but we are to remember what we have already been taught. He says the way not to be unsettled is to remember what has been proclaimed to you from the Word of God. And then the fourth anchor is there in verse 7. He reminds us in verse 7, really through verse 12, but specifically there in verse 7, that our God is sovereign. No matter what might come, no matter who might rise, no matter who might try to deceive you, no matter who this is that restrains the mystery of lawlessness, this mystery of sin, It is ultimately God who is in charge. And then that fifth anchor point is in verse 11. He's going to tell you exactly the way in which the devil schemes, and this man of lawlessness schemes to try to bring you to a state of delusion, to trick you, it might seem. And so as Paul writes concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. That's in verse 1. He gives us those five anchors. Don't be shaken. Don't be deceived. Remember what has been taught to you in your Bibles. Remember that God is sovereign. And then we're going to look into the devil's playbook. We're going to see how he plans to try to deceive the nations. And so if you'll let those five anchor points Uh, stay in your mind, even if you feel a little fuzzy about everything else, we can be edified, this can make a little bit more sense to you. I hope that these five anchor points will be edifying to you as they were edifying to me in my study. And so, let us read verses 1 through 12 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as we've been studying First and Second Thessalonians, it might seem as if Paul is beating the same drum over and over again as he continues to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and our being called up to Him uh, to meet Him in the air. He he has talked about already in 1 Thessalonians, even here in 2 Thessalonians, how the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ should alter the way that we live even now. How we handle hard circumstances, how we handle trials and tribulations, how we persevere as we pilgrim through this strange-filled world. Essentially, is what he has said already, is that the Lord Jesus is on his way Keep laboring on, look for him, be found faithful when he returns. And so, already, Paul has cleared up, if you will, some of the questions and some of the confusions that the Thessalonian believers have had. And here in the second letter, he's writing again to them about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him because there still seems to be some confusion that exists. And pastorally, he is very concerned with their shaken minds. He is very concerned with the alarm of these believers. He is very concerned, pastorally concerned, about the fear in which they are living in. And I think that historical context matters here when we think about the Thessalonian believers. We have to understand that the Thessalonian church is predominantly if not exclusively, Gentiles. A number of times already, Pastor Don and myself has reminded you of that fact as we've journeyed through these Thessalonian letters. But you have to understand, as, as Roman Greco people who have never heard the apostles' teaching until Paul showed up, who don't have Jewish Old Testament backgrounds, as Paul begins to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus and are being gathered up to Him in the air, fully glorified, it causes them to scratch their heads. We we know something of Roman Greco culture. We know that they're very Gnostic in their thinking, which means simply that they believe that everything concerning the body is wicked. And, And so Christ would never come again in bodily form if He is to be the perfect, righteous Son of God, surely that means that He will cast away this wicked body and He will come in a purified spirit. And surely that means that we won't be reattached to our bodies because our flesh is wicked. Surely it will be a a pleasant place where our souls are purified but away from our bodies. This idea of Christ coming back in bodily form and, and Christ reuniting us to a glorified body, causes them hesitation, causes them pause. Maybe even causes them disgust. They have these presuppositions, if you will, that's that's making Paul's teaching very complicated for them to understand. And so confusion abounds regarding the afterlife, regarding heaven, regarding what the end times will be like, regarding the the state of... Glory in which we will enjoy forever and ever. And so as Paul preaches, as he's with them, as Paul leaves, even as Paul writes his first letter to the Thessalonian church, you you actually see that he is concerned, yes, with their being shaken in mind or alarmed, but it's because they have received false teaching. If you look there at verse 12, He says, I don't want you to be shaken in mind. I don't want you to be alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. He's saying that, yes, you might have heard some teacher in the church standing from the pulpit saying they had a word from the Lord who that has contradicted my message Maybe even you have uh, received visions, you might say, uh, of something that has spoken against what I have already taught. Maybe even you have received a letter that seems to be from the apostles, from Paul or one of the other apostles, that contradicts what I have already told you. But understand this, that the day of the Lord has not come the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is being revealed. It's pastorally sensitive for Paul right early to say, Listen, you haven't missed it. Because what's causing the alarm? What's causing the shaking of the mind? It's that this idea, and, and you can imagine, right? Put yourself in the Thessalonian shoes for a moment that, that you have convinced yourself or some outside teacher, false teacher, has convinced you that you have missed the day of the Lord. Now, admittedly, throughout this sermon, I'm going to speak of these presuppositions in which the Thessalonian believers have because of their Greco-Roman background, but you also have to remember my background as well. I was raised in a Bible-believing home. I went to church regularly, but it was a Pentecostal church with a dispensational background, a dispensational understanding of eschatology, and, and therefore, I was telling Pastor Don this, uh, this afternoon, I woke up sometimes in sweats of fear and alarm because I thought that I would missed the secret rapture of Jesus. I heard some noise or I heard some wind and I thought, well, there it was. Here I am all alone. So as, a, as an even a, a preteen or an elementary child i would peer into my mom and dad's bedroom and i would make sure i could see the bodies because if their bodies were there i didn't miss it even my grandmother before she suffered with dementia would call in the middle of the night mary lynn i just wanted to make sure you were there because i thought i heard a trumpet and i wanted to make sure i didn't miss the rapture and you can imagine right what would cause a a woman who's had 70 years of experience in life to fear in such a way. It's that false teachers had told her that she was in jeopardy of missing the coming of the Lord Jesus. So I can understand. I can have some sympathy with these Thessalonian believers. Because in effect they have believed that they have missed the day of the Lord. And so Paul sets out very pastorally right away to say you don't need to be in fear. The Lord actually has commanded us not to be in a spirit of fear, but we are to have a spirit of power and of love and a a sound mind and therefore know what is going to take place before the Son of God returns and gathers us up with Him in glory. Now just as a little bit of a side note, I know that we believe in the infallibility, the inerrancy, the authority of Scripture here. At First Presbyterian Church, we we strongly believe, even as we heard this morning in our sermon, that that as our God is faithful and true, so is His Word faithful and true. But that doesn't mean that we wrestle with, that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle, better yet, with hard questions. Paul's not condemning them for wrestling with hard concepts of the Scripture. Even, Even tonight, we'll leave with questions. Even, even myself, as I stand here and preach this section of, of God's Word, I have questions that, that I just cannot answer. And yet, we're not supposed to wrestle with these questions with a sense of fear. And we're not supposed to wrestle with these questions by ourselves. And so, pastorally, I cannot re-emphasize that enough, pastorally, Paul comes alongside of them and is dealing precisely with that kind of situation. These people's faith has become unsettled. They have thought that they have missed the day of the Lord. And and Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken. That's the first anchor of this text. And the second one is there in verse 3. I don't want anyone to deceive you in any way. Look back at verse 3 if you still have your Bibles open. He says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first... And then the man of lawlessness or sin, I actually think that the manuscripts that say sin, the man of sin is is more proper here. But the man of lawlessness is revealed. The the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so Paul says very quickly as he addresses these questions, these issues, this alarmness that exists within the heart of the Thessalonian believers, he says there's actually a definite way that you can know that you have not missed the day. You haven't missed it, but let me actually tell you why you haven't missed it. Because before the day of the Lord happens, the rebellion will come, and this man of lawlessness, this man of sin will be revealed. And before we can even tackle who this man of lawlessness is, before we can even run there, we have to notice what Paul is doing first. He's saying, you can know. In other words, Paul is saying there is something that has to happen before the day of the Lord. There is something that has to take place. There are noticeable marks within the course of history. He's explaining the definite way in which the Lord will reveal the coming of the Son. And therefore, Thessalonian believers, you have not missed it. But that still leaves us with the question, doesn't it? Well, what is this rebellion? Or this, maybe your translation of God's Word says apostasy. Who is this man of lawlessness? And for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, people have taken stabs at who it might be. All the way back in the early church, you had all of these believers and probably even the apostles saying that the leading candidate for this man of lawlessness, this man of sin, was was the Roman emperor. Especially when the Roman emperor was Nero, right? We've we've heard the, the hatred that the emperor Nero had for the Christians so much so that he would dip them in wax and use them as burning candles for his orgies and his parties. Surely he was a good candidate. Well, Nero lives and dies. And then after him, there's more Roman emperors who would make good candidates of this man of lawlessness. But then after Constantine comes and he's converted to Christianity, where's our options now? Well, it has to be the vandals, right? These these wicked men, these tribalistic men who are trying to take over Rome, who are trying to take over North Africa, who are moving into Europe, who is invading the Roman Empire. And eventually, in 455, we know our history well, I hope that they do. And so here we are, these vandals, These tribalistic men, surely one of them is this man of lawlessness. Surely this is the rebellion against this Christianized Roman Empire. But what happens to the vandals? They are met with the gospel and they are changed. So who's next? Well, we could move through to the spread of Islam through the Roman world, all the way up through Spain, across North Africa, into Europe, and we can say surely the man of lawlessness is Muhammad. In the Middle Ages, it surely was not just the Pope, but the evil Popes of the Roman Catholic Church. Well then, as the Reformation's building up and the Reformation comes, it's not just the wicked Popes, it's all the Popes. And just to return the favor, all the Popes are saying, well, it's Martin Luther. And then throughout history, of course, we continue to make stabs at it like men, wicked men, like Adolf Hitler. And all these men yet come and go, and the Son of God has not returned. So what do we do with all of this? Well, we can't go farther than the Word of God, can we? Just as Paul spells this out for us, what are we to be looking for in this man of lawlessness, this man of sin? And you see first that he is a man who is against God's law. You'll just look back at the text that we just read together. It begins to explain to us, give us these characteristics of this man of sin. And he calls him, rightly so, but calls him lawless. He stands against the law of God. Even some commentators say that he will stand against the law of the land. He will try to create his own religion his own government you might say he rebels against all things because he is the son of destruction he has been ordained to destroy but he's also been ordained to be destroyed that's the one thing Paul's telling you in this passage that he will come and he will destroy because he is a man who is full of sin full of lawlessness and yet at the same time he is a man who will be destroyed. Why will he be destroyed? Because he sets himself up in the place of God. He tells you in verse 11 even, look down at that next to last verse of our text. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they might believe what is false. If you're using a King James Version, they get it better than the ESV here. What is the lie? What is the lie? And what is the law? Well, that language is brought to us in Romans chapter 1. The law is exchanging the creator for the creation. And so this new law, this new government, this new religion, as the man of lawlessness places himself up in the highest of powers, all of it's going to be focused upon exchanging the creator for the creation. That we would believe the lie. That is what he is searching for. That's what he's working towards. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken, but I also don't want you to be deceived by this man of lawlessness and this spirit of rebellion. I want you to remember what you have been taught. That's the third anchor, remember? There in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you, These things. Now, Paul is not specifically talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus, though he did preach those things. He he preached a robust view of eschatology. He preached a high view of Christ. He preached that the living Lord would one day return for His people to usher us into glory, to gather us up together with Him. But Paul did not stop there as Paul did in every city in which he went. He preached the full counsel of God. And so Paul is reminding them, I have preached the word to you. And even in 1 Thessalonians, as we referenced this morning, you accepted it not as my words, or even the words of those with me, or the words of the apostles. You received it as the word of God. I want you to remember what you have been taught. I want you to remember that I have told you these things. I want you... To go back to God's word, I want you to go back to your Bibles. I want you to trust only what your Bible says. That's what Paul's saying. And I remember again these presuppositions. We think about the Thessalonians. I understand these presuppositions myself. What is the end going to? Be, you know, what is it going to be like? What sh- What should we? Believe about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so, these presuppositions are, are in direct conflict with what the Word of God saying. And Paul is saying, trust the Word. Don't trust any presupposition that you might know. Trust the Word. It is faithful and it is true. As I began wrestling with Reformed theology in college... Even as I worked here and, and began seminary, I remember sitting in, in theology classes as it as we began to dive into the doctrine of the end times, eschatology, and I can remember asking during a break, because I didn't want to look foolish in class. I walked up to Dr. Dr. Ross and I said, Dr. Ross, this is this is great. But I have a question. So, is it going to be like the movies that I watched or the books that I read? When I was growing up in the Pentecostal church, is there going to be this Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo where there's going to be tanks and and helicopters and planes and and when are we going to attack China and Russia? It was always China and Russia, rightly so, I think, Uh, but it was always China and Russia. We did have a couple of false prophets come through the church that said the Antichrist would rise out of Spain, and I never understood that, but nonetheless... When is all this going to happen and Dr. Ross did his belly laugh and he goes, it's not. Matt trust the Bible, don't go any farther than what the Bible says is going to take place at the end of time and that's what Paul is that's what Paul is encouraging these Thessalonian believers to do as well. Paul's saying, you need to look, you need to go back you need to To remember what I've taught you, you need to focus in on the Word of God and anchor your soul. Anchor your mind. Anchor your actions there. Don't go any farther. And if you get held up in one of the texts of the Scriptures that you remember, go to other Scripture. Let let Scripture interpret Scripture, we often say. But don't go farther than the Scripture. Remember what you've been taught. And what you've been taught in verses 7 through 10, especially verse 7, is that God is sovereign. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Remember at the very beginning of this sermon I said the reason why so many commentators have written so many pages on this text is verse 3, who is the man of lawlessness, and verse 7, who is restraining the man of lawlessness. And all good commentators have disagreed. My favorite theologian, or one of my favorite theologians right now, he's my favorite theologian. They change so often. Uh, But but my favorite theologian right now is B.B. Warfield. I'm reading the authority and inspiration of the Scripture. B.B. Warfield thought it was the Jewish state. Most commentators today think that Paul had in mind the Roman Empire some of the better commentators of church history, including William Hendrickson, that is one of my go-to commentators, especially as I'm wrestling with hard texts like we are tonight. He says it's just the principle of government in general which restrains evil, just as Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Here's the answer I have for you. I don't know. But, but I know ultimately... Who is restraining the man of lawlessness? I know who ultimately is restraining the rebellion. It's the same one who sends the spirit of delusion. It's the Lord Himself. You see what the big scope here in verses 7 through 10 is that ultimately it is God who is in control of all things, whoever this restrainer might be. And I seem to agree with William Hendrickson in thinking it's the principle of the government in general, as Paul writes in Romans 13. But even if I'm wrong, I know that that the government would only be an instrument in the hand of a sovereign God. It is God who ultimately restrains evil. And this is beautifully and awesomely put before us. if you just look at verse eight and see what is going to happen when the lawless one is revealed. It's almost as if it, it's, it's almost as if Paul writes to, to get you trembling in your boots just a little bit, all for him to go, you should probably stop that. Because when the lawless one is revealed, when the spirit of rebellion comes, the Lord Jesus, look at the language will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. It's going to be radical and complete. Jesus' victory will be overwhelming as He defeats the man of lawlessness and the spirit of rebellion. It's going to be almost as if it's a boom. I don't think there's going to be an audible boom, but it's going to be quick as a boom that... That Christ returns and the man of lawlessness is defeated. You think about all the Disney fantasy stories. If you know, I have to deal with these fantasy princess stories, and I have to deal with things like Star Wars, right? Uh, boy and girl, both watching Disney Plus at home. Uh, you know, you got to you got to wrestle with both of these things. But the story, the plot, is always the same. It seems as if evil is going to win. The hero sweeps in, and just by the skin of his teeth defeats the enemy. That's not the story of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a victory by the skin of His teeth. It's going to be an absolute, overwhelming destruction of the man of lawlessness. We cannot forget that God is completely and overwhelmingly sovereign in the midst of all these things. And then one last thing, and I know I'm over time already, but one last thing comes to us in verse 11. That fifth anchor... Paul wants to tell us how the evil one, how Satan himself, alongside of this man of lawlessness, how he will try to trick us, how he'll try to bring about a strong delusion, how he will work to cause us to believe what is false in order that we might be condemned. Well, we mentioned it before. He wants us to believe in the law. At the end of verse 11, it says in your ESV, what is false? The King James says, what is the law? The law is Romans 1 language again, replacing the creator with the creature, worshiping the creature instead or rather than the creator. Paul calls that in Romans chapter 1. The lie, and that fits perfectly with the man of lawlessness here. He's going to place himself up in Jerusalem. What does that mean? He's going to place himself in the very place in which God dwells. That's Old Testament imagery. He's going to attempt to take the place of God. He is going to attempt to govern the world. He is going to attempt to be worshipped. And Paul is saying, I'm giving you the devil's playbook. Here is what he is going to do. He even tells us, this is Satan's activity in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is Satan's doing, the coming of the man of lawlessness. This is what he is attempting to do so that you might be led astray, so that you might be condemned. I know this is a sports illustration, but college football is quickly approaching, guys. Uh, We we need to be aware. what is If you're watching college football, what is one of the funniest things to watch? The offensive coordinator. And let me tell you why. Because the offensive coordinator, he can be even sitting in the booth all by himself. And here's what he's doing. He's calling the plays with the the paper over his mouth. Why is he doing that? Because you won't be able to read his lips. So that you won't know what play he's running. So that you won't know his playbook. So that he might execute his playbook. And so that he might win the game. No matter how much Satan tries to hide his lips. No matter how much Satan is paranoid about you knowing his playbook, Paul, so kindly as he is inspired by the Spirit, gives you the playbook. He gives you the playbook, and he says, this is what Satan is going to attempt to do. Therefore, in the light of Jesus' coming, and in light of the deception that will come before His coming, you need to stand firm. You need to not be shaken, you need to not be deceived, you need to remember what you have been taught, you need to worship and live for your sovereign God, and you need to know the playbook so that you might persevere even through the the hardest of times, so that you might not be led astray. So that you might not be condemned, because there are unbelievers all in the world that is going to be deceived and delusioned by Satan and this man of lawlessness, this spirit of rebellion. Beloved, it cannot be so with us. We cannot be shaken, we cannot, we cannot be deceived. We must trust in our sovereign God, remember what he has declared to us in his word, and we must stand strong. Because we know the devil's playbook. We know what's coming. And therefore, if we know what's coming, we can be victorious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time together that we've been able to to come to your word. We know that there are many, hundreds probably, questions that have not been answered from this difficult text. And yet, let us be anchored in these truths. And and let us be reminded, Lord, that you are sovereign no matter what might come. And that your call for us is to persevere. And we do not persevere with a faith, a faith that has no hope. But we have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been victorious already over sin, already over Satan, already over this man of lawlessness and this spirit of rebellion and so let us understand Lord that Jesus Christ is our hope let us know that as we persevere in his name as we sojourn through this wicked and sin-filled world in his name that his victory is our victory and so let us be ever ready ever ready for the tribulations that might come but ever ready For when you break the eastern sky and gather us up together with you in glory, we pray that you would not tarry, but that you would come quickly. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.